Klaus Schwab and the Great Reset is dying. Not soon enough in my book. Talk about that coming up. Vaccinating bees? Oh, come on. Ah, I'm serious. You won't believe this one. And stupid tourists. Oh, yes, stupid tourists. Welcome to the Jay Sheldon Show. Howdy. Welcome in, everybody. Hello, Rumble, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch.tv. If you are watching on any one of those platforms on Rumble and Facebook, just hit the follow button. Really appreciate it. It's free, and uh, it it uh, really benefits the show a lot when you do that. So please do. On Rumble and uh, Facebook, our new channel, which we're on now on Rumble, the Jay Sheldon Show channel. There's a link, top link in our show notes. Just follow that, click follow, and off you go. You're done. It's free. On YouTube, of course, it's subscribe. I don't know why these platforms don't get together and just make it one word. No matter what, it's free, so thanks. Uh, All right, so we got that coming up. We've got more on the way. And uh, yes, I know, I still look like I have a sunburn. Can't help it. That's what eczema does to you folks. Nightmare. Uh, yeah, one of these days we'll talk about that. Okay, right now it's time for an update on our favorite little girl. This is Miko. Miko. Update. There she is. I-, I posted this yesterday because she was giving me drama. Remember I told you she won't eat her food and then she wants to be hand-fed? And then sometimes even when you hand feed, that's how she sits, just like that picture. She'll sit right in front of her bowl, and she'll look up at you with those puppy dog eyes. So I I wrote this description. Miko, feed me. Me. I'm not feeding you. Eat yourself. Miko, hand feed me, please. Me. No. I tried three times, and you still refuse to eat. Miko, but I want you to feed me. Me. I'm not... Okay, okay. We'll try again. Tries to hand feed. She refuses. Miko. Feed me. Me. Ah! (laughs) Oh, man. Anyway, eventually she did eat that. We're going to go back to my personal Facebook page because I want to share this with you, too. Yes, look, I'm wearing shorts. That's me. It's not just me in a little box. That's the whole body me. I made dinner last night. As a matter of fact, wait, before I do that, let me show you this. It's kind of Miko updatey, kind of not. This is what I made, and it came out great. It was a, a, a baked chicken with linguine and this cream mushroom sauce, and it was so good. I'll give you a... You know what Maggie Mee is? What I guess in the U.S. you call it ramen noodles. They come with the little flavor packs. Well, we have a bunch of leftover ones. So before I, I always sear the, the chicken breasts before I bake them. I sprinkled the spicy Maggie Mee flavoring on top. And then I seared it in. Mwah! It was so good. <laughs> Anyway, this is actually me cooking, and that's Miko thinking she's going to get fed. So, yeah, she, (laughs) tongs in hand, me checking on the chicken. Yes, I use an uh, air fryer. And uh, Miko, like I said, she just sits there and waits, and waits for something to drop on the floor, or (laughs) waits for me to give in and give her some food. But uh, that's... That's Miko's update. She's doing great. Miko update brought to you by the folks at BarkBox.com slash Miko. That's our special link. BarkBox is a monthly subscription service for your dog. You and your dog will absolutely love it. I guarantee it. In fact, they guarantee it. If you're ever not happy with something, they will make it right no matter what. It's 100% guarantee. Every month you'll get a a subscription box, which is themed. There's a special theme every month. 
and you get uh, two dog toys, sized right for your dog, two bags of dog treats, which are all natural and good for you, and a dog chew. So pretty much you're set up for the month, and by the time you get through a six-month subscription to this thing, you'll have so many toys your dog won't know what to do. So check it out. It's BarkBox.com. We have a very special deal where if you sign up for a six- or 12-month subscription, you will get an extra month free which is like a $35 value, USD. Um, So yeah, check it out, BarkBox.com. Use our special link. You put slash Miko afterwards on the link. There's a link in our show notes if you forget. BarkBox.com slash Miko. And uh, thank you, BarkBox, for sponsoring the Miko update. My goodness. All right, what else we got going on? We got a lot going on, not the least of which is this ridiculous, and when I say ridiculous, I mean ridiculous, World Economic Forum crap going on in Davos right now. Well, it ain't all going as well as they expected, and good. I'm very glad. First of all, why was Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, speaking in Davos? Don't you have more important things to be doing? Second of all, that Nazi Klaus Schwab isn't going. He's missing the opening. And I understand Bill Gates also backed out of going, which is really weird. Something's going on. Anyway, this link is in our show notes. It's from thegreatclimatecon.com. The Great Reset is failing. Klaus and friends appear to be losing their grip on their 2030 target. These unelected, unappointed, self-appointed idiots. Imagine going all in on this garbage and it flops. Well, that appears to be the case. The World Economic Forum recently announced it believes the net zero agenda is failing Why that is a good thing? Well, it's being attributed in part to the cost of living increase, and it appears the narratives are basically just imploding on each other. Make no mistake, the recent report is full to the brim with alarmism, doomsday prophecies. These are the people who want you to own nothing and eat bugs and be happy. How else to try and initiate a great reset if the world doesn't actually need it or ask for it? Gotta have people believing the sky is falling so they will listen to your solution to save them. Had Paul Ehrlich been correct, England should have stopped existing over two decades ago, yet there they are. Why do these prophets of doom continue to be given even the smallest sliver of the light of day. Well, if people got word about the truth of CO2, for example, they wouldn't for one second go along with the ridiculous net zero agenda. They might realize fossil fuels aren't such a bad thing after all, and humanity burning them brought us out of a CO2 famine. Quoting from the report, the global cost of living crisis threatens to undermine the net zero agenda, potentially leading to dire planetary and social consequences. As a result, the risks of a slower and more disorderly transition to net zero now turned into reality. Translation, We've lost control, and we can't stop people making survivals of themselves and society a priority before their bug-eating agenda. Still can't understand why these pesky people would be more concerned about making sure they're warm during winter, use fossil fuels, nuclear, instead of hopelessly inefficient, expensive, and completely unreliable wind farms. Here's another interesting line from the report. Indeed, with a 1.2 centigrade 
degrees centigrade of warming already in the system. The compounding effect of a climate, changing climate, is already being felt, magnifying humanitarian challenges such as food insecurity. Well, somebody should probably let Klaus Nazi Schwab and his gang of idiots know that more CO2 yields more crops. Duh. Doesn't take a rocket science. That's like grammar school science class. Take Canada, for example. Canada could gain 4.2 meters square kilometers of farmland if things got a bit warmer there. Think about it. This report goes on. It is basically tells you how the whole idea behind this WAEF net zero bullcrap garbage they keep pushing down our throats is failing. And it's failing because of you. And congratulations to you for not putting up, not believing, and not listening to their crap. By the way, I saw the best meme today. It had a picture of Al Gore. And it said, when Al Gore was born, there were 130,000 glaciers. Today, 74 years later, there are only 130,000 glaciers left. <laughs> Think about it. But you're just going to... You see that fake arrest, Greta Thunberg, that little whiny, crying, sniveling twerp? You see that? It just happened like yesterday. It was a complete setup. It's just a publicity. That's all she's about is a publicity. She is so into herself. All right, listen, here's something else that, whoa, this has a major soundtrack to it, and I don't want to play the sound. All right. I'm going to show you a video of what is the largest tire gravesite in Kuwait. This is stuff the WEF won't show you. Seems like this in their climate agenda. But take a look. Let me switch over here. There we go. This is from my Twitter. I bookmarked it. Look at this. This is the uh, tires. These are all tires burning endlessly. Look at that. Look at that. Look at what that's putting up into the air. The largest tire graveyard in Kuwait. And you're going to be worried about not using an energy-saving light bulb or a plastic straw. Look at that. If, if you're listening to the podcast, you must check out the feed on Rumble.com. Go over to the Jay Sheldon Show on Rumble and take a look at this footage because... It is scary. There are millions and ten, what looks like tens of millions of tires and a huge portion of it burning. That is absolutely incredible. Unbelievable. And like I said, that's the kind of stuff that the World Economic Forum and all these climate change people won't show you. We will. On this show. Mm. Coffee break time. Hold on. I'm trying to swallow quietly, but this microphone is very sensitive. <laughs> so just bear with me, okay? All right. Uh, let's see. The woke narrative in America, among many different woke narratives in America, is uh, race. And there is a survey out from the U.S. Census Bureau. So, there you go. It's not some right-wing conspiracy theory survey. And it shows the median household income in the U.S. 
by ethnic group. Who do you think makes the most money of ethnic groups in America? I'll, I'll, I'll give you the top five, and you, you guess who's number one. The top five are Sri Lanka, Taiwanese, Indian, Indians from India, uh, Filipino, and Japanese. Which one of those groups do you think is number one? Number one by a lot, by the way. Take a look at this. Indian. $100,500. Number two, Filipino. 83000 The list goes on. The other top five are Taiwanese, Sri Lankan, number four, and Japanese, number five. Look at this, Malaysia. Malaysian Americans are number six. Who'd have thought? That's the median household income in the U.S. by ethnic group. White Americans, Caucasian Americans, uh, six, seven, eight, rank number nine. 59,200, almost half of what the number one median income is, which belongs to Indian people. Again, Indians from India, not Native Americans. This is insane. Percentage of population with a bachelor's degree. Indian Americans, 70%. Korean, 53. Chinese, 51. Filipino, 47. Japanese, 46. And the U.S. average, 28%. Zang! The link to this uh, tweet is in our show notes tonight. I put it in there. Uh, it's a tweet from End Wokeness, at End Wokeness. Very cool uh, account. If you get a chance, give them a follow because uh, they're brilliant. They do some really, really good stuff. But, uh, yeah, I saw that and I thought, oh, man, it surprised me. Unbelievable. All right. And uh, when it comes to unbelievable, this one will get you. This is from the dailymail.co.uk. Now, there's a bunch of ads here, which I got to try and get past. So let me try and get rid of the ads first, and then I'll be able to show you the site. Oh, come on, guys. I don't care about your flat screen TVs and all that other crap. How do I get rid of this garbage? God. All right. Well, whatever. We'll just scroll through it and do our best. The USDA, that is the... That is the Department of Agriculture, which basically is responsible for making sure our food is safe. They have approved the first ever vaccine for honeybees. Not kidding, like that moron Biden says. Not a joke, not kidding. Only that's his tell when he's lying. In my case, this is the truth. It makes them immune to a deadly bacteria that was only contained previously by burning the hive. They approved the first ever vaccine for honeybees designed for the honeybees queen's offspring protects them from American fowl brood, which is a disease caused by spore-forming bacteria. The vaccine is fed to the queen when fragments are dispersed into her ovaries. <laughs> the disease contained previously by burning the whole hive. The vaccine's been developed with uh, killed the whole cell larva bacteria that is mixed with food fed to the queen and passed on to her offspring, then who would become immune to the disease. The treatment's been approved under a conditional license, which has been issued to meet an Emergency condition. Here we go again with this damn bullcrap. And for the case of honeybees, these creatures are a critical component, of course, of agriculture. If we lose bees, you and I are starving to death. No doubt about it, 1,000%. Without the bees, 
we are screwed. My fear is, since we've had such a wonderful experience with other experimental vaccines lately, clot shots I'm talking about, this thing, a conditional license, an emergency condition, an experimental vaccine on bees, what could go wrong? Read the whole article here. It's got more details in it, but it's just one of those head-shaky things that are like, seriously, they're really going to do this? Uh, <laughs> you know, other people, I got some reaction to, uh, we were talking about, you know, digital IDs because we constantly talk about the dangers of that and how they want to control you, how they want to have control over every aspect of your life, what you buy, what you think, what you say. Well, people said, yeah, this whole idea behind them being able to tell you when you can drive and when you can't, because we're Americans and we can do what we want and you can't tell us. Well, guess what happened while you were sleeping? Biden approved infrastructure bill. We all know that piece of garbage mandated kill switches are coming to a car near you by 2026. Deep buried in this ridiculous, stupid infrastructure investment and jobs act, a new doorway opens with a new road to surveilling you. There's the rotting bag of Oatmeal now. Signed into law by unelected President Joe Biden, a passage that requires, requires automakers to begin including a kill switch within the operating software of all new cars. Described in the bill as advanced drunk and impaired driving prevention technology. <laughs> Can I have a ha uh ha? -huh. Yeah, that's what they'll call it. Oh, it's for your own safety. Where have we heard that before? It's for the common good. It's helpful. Meanwhile, if they decide they don't want you driving, click. And your car shut off. And you have no control over it. Every new car sold in the United States by 2026. That is a short three years away. You ready for that? I don't think you're ready for this. Link to the articles in our show notes. It's from musclecarsandtrucks.com. Yeah, no, I don't regularly read muscle cars and trucks site. But the link popped up and I thought, okay, got to check that out. Hey, <sighs> All right, we're going to talk about tourists. Stupid tourists. Annoying tourists. We have a huge tourist market here in Malaysia. Now, all tourist markets, no matter where, we're just south of Thailand. Singapore, which used to be part of Malaysia, is down at the foot of Malaysia, where they belong. And uh, we're above Indonesia. Now, I mention that because I have a lot of American uh, viewers and listeners. And if you're like me 20-something years ago, when I first heard about Malaysia, I said what you're probably saying. Where's Malaysia? So that's where we are. Look it up on a map. It's tropical. It's warm. We have one se two seasons, hot and hot and wet, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> anyway, we get a ton of tourists. Of course, the last couple of years, everybody's tourist industry just the bottom fell out and it went right into the crapper. But uh, the tourist trade is picking up, and this showed up on says.com, an American TikToker asked Malaysians about annoying tourist habits. And the comments Malaysians made are savage. There's the guy, and uh, he said, what are the things that tourists do that annoy you? 
We all had our fair share of experiences with obnoxious tourists. Zero regard for local culture, customs. A TikTok user by the name of Motiotra decided he wanted to be anything but a stereotypical American tourist, which I was not, by the way. A lot of expats, a lot of guaylos, matzales, that's how they refer to Caucasian people here. Uh, You know, they make a ton of money. They come in, they get paid these ridiculously huge salaries. They live in the highest expensive neighborhoods. They eat out at fancy restaurants. I lived in a crap Malaysian condo in the back alleys, and I ate at the Chinese and Malay stalls and Indian stalls downstairs in front of my condo. Because to me, if you're going to live in a culture, live in the culture. Don't move to another country, rent a 100,000 ringgit a month condo, high rise, dine out at all the Western restaurants and bitch about the traffic. If you're going to do that, why did you come here? Stay home. Seriously, if you're going to move to another culture, live in the culture. That's what's so exciting about it. And Malaysia has an absolute potpourri of cultures. Malay, Chinese, Indian, Dan Lain Lain, which means others. <laughs> Seriously, you, you cannot go wrong if you just open your mind. Anyway, he asked, what is some things that uh, tourists do? Not showering every day. A few people pointed out that the less than savory habit of skipping a shower or two uh, when you're up close and personal inside a packed uh, public transport like the uh, sardines, uh, it really does help if you shower usually more than once a day. I'll be honest, when I lived in Connecticut, we had four seasons in the summertime, Take a shower when you get up in the morning. Usually take a, a, a shower at night. Um, but in the wintertime, we'll just take a shower in the morning to rinse off and sleep. And and that's it. One shower a day. Here, minimum, minimum, I take two showers a day. And most days, three. Anyway, yes, American tourists, shower often. Even if you can't smell you, we can smell you. They also uh, commented on tourists drying their damp socks in public eateries. Ew. Yeah. Uh, One user said, when someone thanks you, the polite thing to say back is thank you. As opposed to you're welcome. In America, you say thank you. The other person says you're welcome. Here in Malaysia... It's customary when you say thank you for us to say thank you back. In fact, in Malay, it's termakase. And the reply is sama-sama, which means same, same to you. Thank you. So, yeah, um, don't say you're welcome. You say thank you instead. Little tips you can take with you when you come visit us in Malaysia. This is a funny one. Respect the Maivi. Another user joked that one should respect the humble Myvi above all else. Myvi is kind of our national car. Um, it is quite a Malaysian symbol, and it's quite a car, by the way. Uh, no, they're very cool. You, I admire the Myvis. It is an incredible uh, piece of engineering marvel. And finally, there's more here. Read the article if you want. It's from says.com. Uh, this kind of sums it up. Just be respectful. That's all. And that really is all. That's all you need to do. Just simply be respectful. (laughs) Wow. All right. Uh, Got a couple more for you before we get on to our book. I just, like I said, we got a jam-packed show for you tonight. There's so much stuff here I wanted to share. Um, We all know the Beagle experimental story with uh, that 
murderer, Dr. Fauci. Um, you know the story. If you don't look up Fauci and Beagles, trust me, you don't want to hear or see this story. Um, anyway, experimenting on animals has been a, a thing forever. It still goes on today. Animals are sadly of all kinds, rabbits, mice, dogs, cats, tortured in the most inhumane and cruel ways, all for the sake of your lipstick or your eyeshadow. This is a very cool story, especially if you are as big of an animal lover as me. Organs on a chip, which possibly could replace animals in medical experiments. That is a picture of what I'm talking about. Researchers have been developing a promising model that can more closely mimic the human body. It's an organ, in quotes, on a chip. Bringing a new drug to market costs billions of dollars. It can take over a decade. High monetary time investments are both strong contributors to today's skyrocketing healthcare costs, significant obstacles to developing new therapies for patients, and one big reason behind these barriers is the lab model researchers use to develop the drugs in the first place. Preclinical trials, or studies that test a drug's efficiency or efficacy, and toxicity before it hits clinical trials in people are mainly conducted on animals, both limited by their poor ability to mimic the conditions of the human body. Cell cultures in a Petri dish are not able to replicate every aspect of tissue function. How cells interact with the body or the dynamics of living organs. Animals are not human, even small genetic differences between species can be amplified to major psychological differences and physiological differences, more importantly. Fewer than 8%, 8% of successful animal studies for cancer therapies ever make it to human clinical trials. The animal models often fail to predict drug effects so anyway, what they've done is to see if there isn't another way, and apparently there may be. This analytical chemist has been working to develop organ and tissue models that avoid the simplicity of common cell cultures and the discrepancies of animal models. With further development, he believes organs on chips, little microchips, can help researchers study diseases, there's a picture of one there. And uh, test drugs in conditions that are much closer to real life. How cool is that? And not to mention the animals that will be saved and not tortured because we have this new method. This is absolutely a brilliant story, and I hope this... <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> hope this... Uh, Scientist gets whatever funding he needs to continue his research. It's, it's not in the market yet. It's a theory at the moment. But he strongly... Check out the article. It's from uh, BigThink.com. The link's in our show notes tonight. And he truly believes that uh, it is possible. That would be a nice idea. If we could actually stop testing this kind of crap on defenseless, helpless animals. All right. I got one more for you, then we're going to move on to White Fang, our book we've been reading. And this is... <laughs> we always end with a piece of good news or a heartwarming story, and man, we got one. There's a blind teenager in high school and, you know, when you're in high school, there's several things that happen in virtually every high school across the country. 
you have a prom, maybe a senior ball. You have a yearbook. You have a class night. Well, among the many things that someone who is vision impaired, blind, uh, could take part in proms and senior balls and things, but a yearbook is really something you don't give much thought to. But to someone who is blind, it's really kind of useless. Well, not anymore. Take a look at this. Classmates spent 1,500 hours in secret making a Braille yearbook for a blind teen in their class who had no idea that they were doing that. There she is. The yearbook at Conifer High School in Colorado was very special this year. The theme was More Than Meets the Eye, and there's a reason for that. The yearbook was done in Braille so that blind student R.J. Sampson could enjoy it just as much as her other sighted students. The yearbook staff also report, uh, developed an app for RJ to play audio recordings of the text of the photos as well. During the freshman year, RJ even questioned the possibility of having a yearbook in Braille, but the resources for doing that kind of a project weren't there yet. Earlier this year, however, they were able to make it happen. They spent 1,500 hours making the special yearbook just for R.J. Uh, R.J. had completely forgotten about his request. And there you go. There it is. Yearbook editor-in-chief Laurel Ainsworth presented the special book to R.J. during a senior send-off assembly, and the entire school was able to witness the surprise presentation, and R.J. could not stop smiling as the presentation was made. There you go. There's R.J. Wow. It's absolutely amazing, says R.J. I can't wait to actually read it. It means a lot to me. The community here is really so loving. Wow. That's phenomenal. That is absolutely incredible. What a great story. These kids got together and they made it happen. Ha! How about that? All right. You ready for some classic novel stuff? Uh, if you don't know, we read books on this show. We've been doing it from almost the beginning, 300 and what, 12 episodes ago? Wow. Man. Anyway, we've done The Wizard of Oz, The Little Prince, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, you name it. We've read it. we got more to come. Right now, we've been doing the amazing classic by Jack London from 1906, White Fang. Very famous book. Most people over maybe 30 or 40 have heard of it. Some of you might have actually read it. I did as a kid, uh, but I'm older than dirt, so, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're getting through it slowly but surely, and uh, we're going to continue on tonight with another part of, I believe it's chapter two in the second uh, part of White Fang. And uh, she'd just given birth to five wolf cubs. Well, five or six miles from the lair, the stream divided, its forks going off among the mountains at a right angle. Here, leading up the left fork, old One-Eye came upon a fresh track. He smelled it, found it so recent he crouched swiftly, looked in the direction in which it disappeared, and then he turned deliberately and took the right fork. The footprint was much larger than the one his own feet made, and he knew that in the wake of a, such a trail, there was little meat for him. Half a mile up the right fork, his quick ears caught the sound of gnawing teeth. He stalked the quarry and found it to be a porcupine, standing upright against a tree and trying his teeth on the bark. One eye approached carefully, but hopelessly. 
He knew the breed, though he'd never met it so far north before, and never in his long life had porcupine served him for a meal. But he had long since learned that there was such a thing as chance or opportunity, and he continued to draw near. There was never any telling what might happen, for with live things, events were somehow always happening differently. The porcupine rolled himself up into a ball, radiating long, sharp needles in all directions that defied attack. In his youth, one-eyed once sniffed too near a similar, apparently inert ball of quills and had the tail flick out suddenly in his face. One quill he'd carried away in his muzzle, where it remained for weeks, a rankling flame until it finally worked itself out. So he lay down in a comfortable crouching position, his nose fully a foot away and out of the line of the tail. Thus he waited, keeping perfectly quiet. There was no telling. Something might happen. The porcupine might unroll. Might be an opportunity for a deft and ripping thrust of paw into the tender, unguarded belly. But at the end of half an hour, he arose, growled wrathfully at the motionless ball, and trotted on. He'd waited too often and futility in the past for porcupines to unroll to waste any more time. He continued up the right fork. The day wore along, and nothing rewarded his hunt. The urge of his awakened instinct of fatherhood was strong on him. He must find meat. In the afternoon, he blundered upon a ptarmigan, came out of the thicket, found himself face to face with the slow-witted bird. It was sitting on a log, not a foot beyond the end of his nose. Each saw the other. The bird made a startled rise, but he struck it with his paw and smashed it down to the earth, then pounced upon it, caught it in his teeth as it scuttled across the snow, trying to rise high in the air again. As his teeth crunched through the tender flesh and fragile bones, he began naturally to eat, and then he remembered, turning on the back track, started for home, carrying the ptarmigan in his mouth. A mile above the fork, running velvet-footed as was his custom, a gliding shadow that cautiously prospected each new vista of the trail, he came upon later imprints of the large tracks he discovered in the early morning. As the track led his way, he followed, prepared to meet the maker of it at every turn of the stream. He slid his head around a corner of rock, where began an unusually large bend in the stream, and his quick eyes made out something that sent him crouching swiftly down. It was the maker of the track, a large female lynx. She was crouching, as he had crouched once that day, in front of a tight-rolled ball of quill. If he'd been a gliding shadow before, he became a ghost of such a shadow, as he crept, circled around, and came up well to leeward of the silent, motionless pair. He laid down on the snow, depositing the ptarmigan beside him, with his eyes peering through the needles of a low-growing spruce. He watched the play of life before him. The waiting lynx and the waiting porcupine, each intent on life. And such was the curiousness of the game, the way of life for one laying in the eating of the other. The way of life for the other lay in not being eaten. Well, while old one-eye, the wolf crouching in the covert, covert played his part too in the game, waiting for some strange freak of chance that might help him on the meat trail, which was his way of life. Half an hour passed, an hour, nothing happened. The ball of quills might have been a stone for all it moved. The lynx might have been frozen to marble. An old one-eye might have been dead. 
Yet all three animals were keyed to a tenseness of living that was almost painful. Scarcely ever would it come to them to be more alive than they were then in their seeming petrification. Old One-Eye moved slightly, peered forth with increased eagerness. Something was happening. The porcupine had at last decided that its enemy had gone away. Slowly, cautiously, it was unrolling its ball of impregnable armor. It was agitated by no tremor of anticipation. Slowly, slowly, the bristling ball straightened out and lengthened. One eye watching felt a sudden moistness in his mouth and a drool of saliva, involuntary, excited by the living meat that was spreading itself like a repast before him. Not quite entirely had the porcupine unrolled when it discovered its enemy. In that instant, the lynx struck. The blow was like a flash of light. The paw, with rigid claws curved like talons, shot under the tender belly and came back with a swift, ripping movement. Had the porcupine been entirely unrolled, or had it not discovered its enemy a fraction of a second before the blow was struck, the paw would have escaped unscathed. But a side flick of the tail sank sharp quills into it as it was withdrawn. Everything had happened at once. The blow, the counterblow, the squeal of agony from the porcupine, the big cat's squall of sudden hurt and astonishment. One eye half arose in his excitement, his ears up. His tail straight out and quivering behind him. The lynx's bad temper got the best of her. She sprang savagely at the thing that had hurt her, but the porcupine, squealing and grunting, which disrupted anatomy, trying to feebly to roll up into its ball protection, flicked out its tail again, and again the big cat squalled with hurt and astonishment. Then she fell to backing away and sneezing, her nose bristling with quills like a monstrous pincushion. She brushed her nose with her paws, trying to dislodge the fiery darts, thrust it into the snow, rubbed it against twigs and branches, and all the time leaping about, ahead, sideways, up, down, in a frenzy of pain and fright. She sneezed continually, and her stub of a tail was doing its best towards lashing about by giving quick, violent jerks. She quit her antics, quieted down for a long minute. One eye watched, and even he could not repress a start and an involuntary brustling of hair along his back when she suddenly leaped without warning straight up in the air, at the same time emitting a long and most terrible squall. Then she sprang away, up the trail, squalling with every leap she made. It wasn't until her racket had faded away into the distance and died out that one eye ventured forth. He walked as delicately as though all the snow were carpeted with porcupine quills, erect and ready to pierce the soft pads of his feet. The porcupine met his approach with a furious squealing and clashing of his long teeth. It had managed to roll up into a ball again, but it wasn't quite the old compact ball. Its muscles were much too torn for that. It had been ripped almost in half and was still bleeding profusely. One eye scooped out mouthfuls of the blood-soaked snow and chewed and tasted and swallowed it. This served as a relish, and his hunger increased mightily. But he was too old in the world to forget his caution. He waited. He lay down and waited, while the porcupine grated its teeth and uttered grunts and sobs and occasional sharp little squeals. 
In a little while, one eye noticed the quills were drooping and that a great quivering had set up. Quivering came to an end suddenly. It was a final defiant clash of the long teeth. And then all the quills drooped quite down. The body relaxed and moved no more. Yeah. That's the thing about this book. We're going to continue on with this adventure coming up on uh, on our show on uh, Saturday night. We'll keep reading this chapter. But it's written from the viewpoint of the animals. And it's very real. And it's very, lays it right out there. It is a violent world. And Mr. London, when he wrote this novel, knew that and put it in his writing, as you just heard. So we will continue with this coming up on our next stream on Saturday night. I love this book, White Fang by Jack London, way back in 1906 when it was first published. All right, that's going to do it for us. Thanks so much for joining us. We had a big pack show tonight. And uh, we will see you again Saturday night. Please, 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 our top link in the show note tonight, it talks about our new Rumble channel. Just head over there, sign up for a free account if you don't have one already, and click the follow button. It's right over here somewhere. You'll see it right down about there. Uh, it says follow. Click that, okay? Even if you've already followed the Jay Sheldon account, this is our new channel and I need you to do me that big uh, that big favor. Please, it's, uh, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. It's right down there somewhere. And just click that and you're done. That's all you need to do. I really appreciate it. All right, we'll see you again Saturday night. This has been the Jay Sheldon Show. Good night. Snort. <laughs>